Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would give sight to a blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm a storm with his hand? Did you know that your baby boy has walked where angels when you kiss your little baby, you kiss the face of God, oh Mary, you know. Mary, did you know? The blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lord. Oh, Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know that your baby boy was heaven's perfect lamb? The sleeping child, your holy, is the great Without a doubt, there are so many great Christmas songs, but this one, Mary, Did You Know, has to be one of my favorites. Did you know that Mary, Did You Know is actually written in the year 1984 by a guy named Mark Lowry. And over the last 38 years, this song, Mary, Did You Know, has been recorded by hundreds of artists in multiple different genres, in several different languages, and countless times it has reached the top 10 billboard charts. The song, Mary, Did You Know, really asked the question, what did Mary know? How, how aware was she? Did, did she have any concept of what Jesus would become and what Jesus would ultimately do? And, and honestly, it's impossible for us to know exactly, but what the gospels let us in on 
is that as Mary journeyed with Jesus, that she was discovering and learning along the way who Jesus would ultimately be. And eventually, as the song says, she got to the point where she realized that the baby boy she delivered would soon deliver her. But if you rewind a little bit and and just think about Mary, she must have felt completely in over her head. Have you, have you ever felt in over your head? I think of parenting. If, if you're a parent, parenting is really one long journey of feeling in over your head. I remember when our oldest son, Charlie, was a little older than, a little over three, and uh, my wife, Sarah, was pregnant with Lila, our, our, our third child. And Charlie was in bed with Sarah and I as, as you know, we were just talking. And, and I asked Charlie, I said, Charlie, do you have any questions for us? You know, you're going to have a new baby sister soon. How, how are you feeling about that? And, and Sarah pregnant with Lila and Charlie right here and me next to them. We were sitting there talking and, and Charlie said, yeah, I, I, I do have a question. And he thought for a second and he said, how is Lila going to get out? And we were not prepared. We were in over our heads. And we fumbled through some kind of answer of, okay, how do we explain to three-year-old Charlie how baby Lila is going to come into the world? And, and I'm not sure how well we did it, but we tried our best. And, and then it got real silent for a minute. And then Charlie said, I have one last question. And he thought for a moment, he said, how did baby Lila get in there? And we were not prepared, not ready to have that conversation with our three-year-old. But, but maybe you're married and, and there's been a season. Maybe you've only been married a few months. Maybe you've been married for a few years. And, and you know that sense of feeling in over your head. Maybe there's a big career move ahead of you. Maybe something is going on in your life. Maybe a health diagnosis that leaves you feeling like you are in over your head. Well, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us would have been in over our heads had we experienced what Mary experienced. I mean, she was going to give birth to and raise God in a bod, Jesus Christ, God with us. She was going to raise him. Can you imagine all the questions and things she must have been wrestling with? Well, here's what I want to do with our time together. It is I want to quickly look at Jesus's life through the eyes of Mary. I want to look at some critical moments for Mary as she processed, as she made sense of, as she was journeying with Jesus, who was the boy she raised, who became her savior. And then I want to kind of turn a corner and ask you a really, really important question this December. So let's start with this. Mary, did you know? What was Mary's journey with Jesus like? Well, chapter one of that is Mary received the news. Mary received the news. Luke chapter one goes like this. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. To a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. Mary, you have found favor with God. 
you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, this message comes to Mary at a very interesting time in her life. You see, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. When we think about the first century Jewish culture, there were three sort of steps or processes that happened when somebody was going to get married. Now, Mary is in the betrothal stage with Joseph when she becomes pregnant with Jesus. And in the first century Jewish culture, there's these three phases, these three steps of marriage. The first one is this, engagement. This is where a paid matchmaker or possibly parents would get together and say, hey, I've got a son. Hey, you've got a daughter. Let's get them together. Let's get them married. They're both Jewish. They love each other. Boom, let's do it. Let's get them together. Well, that would happen and it would be arranged that they would be married. The second step within the first century Jewish marriage process was what, what was called betrothal. This is where the families would agree upon a one-year period of preparation for marriage. In fact, this stage was so formal that an official divorce would be required if either party wanted to break things off. And then the third and final stage is obviously marriage. This is where the couple would have a wedding with their friends and their family and their community. They would come together, they would move in together, and they would become husband and wife. Mary is in that betrothal stage when she finds out she is going to be pregnant with Jesus. Now, why the name Jesus? Jesus was a fairly common name. In fact, Jewish parents naming their son Jesus was about as common as nowadays someone naming their child Juan or Sarah. You see, Jesus is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew Joshua or Yeshua, which means Yahweh is salvation. One of the reasons Jewish parents would name their children Yeshua or Jesus was to express their hope and anticipation of God's coming salvation from their oppressors. Well, once Mary received the news, chapter 2, Mary accepted the news. Luke 1 verse 38 says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your words to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Mary, uncertain exactly about what all of this would mean, with I'm sure some fear and questions in her mind and her heart, she communicates her obedience. That she communicates her identity. That she is a follower of God and so she will be obedient even though she doesn't understand what all of this means. Well, the third chapter is Mary sang the news. Mary sang the news. Luke chapter 1, 46 to 49 says, And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. She can't help but break out into song, even when there's fear and uncertainty and questions. I find this to be incredibly encouraging because maybe this December, 
There's things that are holding you back. There's fears and concerns you have. There's, there's pain. There's relational brokenness. There's, there's loss that you've experienced. That even in the midst of a painful, difficult month, where there's still questions and uncertainties, we could follow Mary's example, who sings out to God knowing that he is going to care for her, knowing that God sees her, and in the same way, God sees you and I. Well, next, Mary pondered the news. She, she pondered the news. So Jesus has been born, and, and all of a sudden, these shepherds start showing up and all of a sudden, these magi, these astrologers, uh, star watchers from the east show up. And Mary is processing all of this. And, and in Luke chapter 2, verse 19, it says this, But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The Greek word ponder here literally means to give careful thought to. She's pondering what she's experiencing. But then, then, Mary feared the news. After pondering it, Mary began to, I I would assume, fear the news based on what is about to happen. You see, Mary and Joseph, they bring Jesus to the temple to dedicate him to God as a way of saying we are going to raise him to know God. It's one of the reasons we do child dedications here. And if, if you've got a kiddo that you haven't dedicated here, we'd love the opportunity to do that because Jesus's parents did that with him. And yet, Somebody says something rather shocking and I think surprising that may have elicited some fear within Mary. And in Luke chapter 2, 34 and 35, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. But then there's this line. He says this to Mary looking at her in the eyes. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. Oh, that, that would bring about some fear and some questions within me. Well, then next, Mary misplaced the news. So Jesus, baby Jesus, grew up to become preteen middle school Jesus. And there's this amazing story recorded for us in Luke chapter 2, same chapter, just a few verses later. Thinking Jesus, the he there is Jesus, thinking Jesus was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? How could you? Have you ever had that moment with your preteen kiddo or your teenager or your little one where you've said, why are you the way you are? What is going on? That's how Mary's feeling. Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I love this. This is preteen middle school Jesus on full display. He says, why were you searching for me? I mean, I can't help but feel like there's a little bit of attitude in that response. Why were you searching for me? Uh, Because it's been four days since we've seen you. 
didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But this wasn't, this wasn't the worst moment in Mary's journey with Jesus. It was what happened a lot later when Mary lost the news. In, in John's gospel, John chapter 19, it's recorded for us that when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled that said they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. Can you just let that sink in for a moment? Whether you're a parent or not, can you just imagine that moment? That here is Jesus being brutally murdered and his mother sees it all. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, this means she was standing close enough to hear him. I imagine he wasn't yelling, but he's whispering and she is close enough to see this and to hear this. Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Jesus is preparing his own mother for what life will look like once he is gone. Mary has lost her son in the most brutal way possible. But this, this wasn't the end of Mary's journey with Jesus. In fact, there's one incredible hopeful turn that according to this next passage, I think it makes it clear that Mary trusted the news. Oh, she had received and accepted and sang and pondered and feared and misplaced and lost the news. And then it's clear to me that Mary trusted the news. There's this little verse embedded for us in the beginning of Acts it's after Jesus has, has come back from the dead. It's after he's shown himself to the disciples that they all join together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers. See, Mary and Jesus' brothers and those closer to him, his disciples, they got it. They believed that Jesus was everything that he said he was, that he truly was the savior of the world, that he would truly deliver all of humanity, including Mary, from their sins. And Mary trusted the news. But I've got a question for you. And the question is this. Church, did you know? Church, did you know that the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. 
You see, here's Mary. We're imagining she's wondering throughout her whole life, who is this Jesus? What do I make of him? Well, in the Christmas in December of 2022, this Christmas, church, post the resurrection of Jesus, do you know or have you forgotten that the Holy Spirit literally lives inside of you? I mean, look at Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? You see, Mary gave birth to Jesus, and there's Jesus living out in the world. She has all kinds of questions. But did you know that church inside of you, the Holy Spirit lives? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your bodies. Paul says in a similar vein in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. This is amazing news. Paul says the Spirit that awoke Jesus, that brought him back to life, that has power over life and death, lives in you. You, oh, why do why, why can the church have hope in the in the in the middle of being in a crazy world? Why can you and I engage in this Christmas season after losing someone with peace and hope and joy? Because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus, raised Christ Jesus from the dead. He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same spirit living within you. Now in Acts chapter 20, towards the end of Paul's ministry, we see the Holy Spirit doing five things in Paul's life. And I want to propose and suggest that this month, this December, amidst all the family gatherings we'll have, all the experiences we'll share, all the, all the moments with God and others that, that will be a part of this season, that the Holy Spirit wants to do the same five things he was doing in Paul's life. He wants to do them in you. Because church, did you know the Holy Spirit lives in you? The first thing, the first thing is this. Church, did you know that the Holy Spirit makes us helpful in word and deed. What is the Holy Spirit doing in you? The Holy Spirit makes us helpful in word and deed. Acts chapter 20, just verse 20. Look at this. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that, or you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. Here's Paul saying, when I've preached to you, I've shared things that are helpful to you. So in his words, he's being helpful, but he also says that he's been traveling around from house to house. So you see, in Paul's words and in his actions, he's being helpful. Could the same be said of you? Or in other words, how does the Holy Spirit want to use you to be helpful in word and deed this Christmas. And here's the thing. The more helpful you are with your actions, the more impactful your words will be. The, the, more, the more helpful you are with your actions, the more impactful your words 
will be. I, I remember a number of years ago, I was on a, a police ride along and I have loved going on those. And, and so I was on a police ride along and, and the night was pretty slow until we got in a high speed pursuit at the end of the evening. And here we are driving 120 miles an hour down side streets, having to stop at every stop sign or light or intersection. And I'm telling you, I mean, there was an, the officer driving, an officer in the passenger seat. I was in the back. I was buckled up. I was holding on for your life. I didn't know what to do in that moment, except I literally just tried to encourage the officers. So I said things that were probably not helpful at all, but I said, you're doing great. Um, <clears throat> keep driving fast and safe. Like I just didn't know what to do, but I was just trying to be helpful. What if this Christmas you were the most helpful person in your family? What if the Holy Spirit is asking you to just serve your family and friends in your words and in your actions. Number two, church, did you know the Holy Spirit gives us boldness with those who are far from God? Look, look at the next verse, verse 21. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You see, Paul says we have the greatest news in the history of the world. That we have the secret to how you and I can live forever. That life eternal is found only in a relationship with Jesus. And it begins with repentance. It begins with turning back to God and saying, I can't save myself. And here's Paul saying that I'm boldly proclaiming to everyone that I can that there is hope this Christmas, that there is peace this Christmas, and it's not in a promotion at work. It, it, it's not in anything outside of a relationship, a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And you know, I recognize that as we're gathering with family and friends, it can be difficult to talk about this stuff. That, that you may go, man, I don't want to rock the boat. I, I, I don't, if I share about my relationship with Jesus, it might make people feel uncomfortable or I can have to answer questions. I, I might lose something in the process. I might lose my reputation with them. Can I just ask you this question? I want to lovingly ask you this, but I hope it challenges you as it's challenging me. And the question is this. Is what you have to lose as significant as what they have to lose. You see, you may feel like, well, I, I would lose my reputation. I would lose sort of the comfort of, a, of a, a family environment with no conflict. But what do they have to lose? People who don't know Jesus, they have everything to lose. They'll miss out on a relationship right now with the king of kings who came for them and they will miss out on eternity with him. They will be separated forever from Jesus. What they have to lose is far greater than what we have to lose. You know, what's interesting though, is if, if you look at verse 20 and 21, where Paul talks about being helpful in his preaching and being bold in his preaching, essentially what Paul lays out for us is, is what a great sermon is. You see, the goal of a sermon is to help the not yet believer find Jesus and to help the believer follow Jesus. This is the goal of our preaching, that when we log on, when we tune in, when we're listening over podcasts, the goal here is that a sermon would help the not yet believer find Jesus and begin a relationship with Christ. 
And then for those of us that are believers, that it would help us follow Jesus. You see, the goal of a sermon is transformation, not just increased information. The temptation is to think a great sermon means that I now know more than I did before I came in. While that is an important part, the goal of a sermon is that we would become more like Christ. Not just increasing our knowledge, but that we would actually be transformed, that our lives would be different because of our encounter with God through a sermon. It's why Paul says, you know, knowledge puffs up, but love a transformed life that has been transformed by love, that actually builds up. Number three, church, did you know the Holy Spirit compels us to trust him in uncertain times? The next verse, verse 22, Paul says, and now compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Paul is uncertain. He can probably anticipate there's going to be some challenges as he goes into Jerusalem. But he's compelled by the Holy Spirit. You see, Paul suffered a lot. But it was through those sufferings that he was given lots of opportunities to share the gospel. For many to come to faith. And maybe, maybe God wants to use the season that you're in right now. A really difficult, painful, hard season. To give you an opportunity to tell people about how the only way you're getting through is because of Jesus. The only way you're able to make it through is because your life group is coming around you and praying for you and reminding you of God's hope. Number four, church, did you know the Holy Spirit warns us that following Jesus won't be easy? Look at this, the next verse. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. This is when you know you're close to God. When the Holy Spirit isn't just telling you things that encourage you, but he's actually warning you because you're so locked into the mission that he has for your life, because you're so committed to being obedient to him and to following him that he's even warning you of the challenges that are coming. You see, friends, as, as Christians living in the West, living in America in the year 2022, there's a great temptation because following Jesus isn't easy. There's a great temptation to settle. And I would argue there's a great temptation to settle for a different gospel. The first gospel that we would settle for, the different gospel that, that, that we're tempted to settle for would be the political gospel. You see, the political gospel says if we could just get this candidate or if we could just get that candidate in office, God's will would be done and everything would be right in the world. But Jesus showed up onto a scene full of different political persuasions and said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The way the world is transformed is by more and more people being introduced to the love of God. And as they're aware of God's infinite sacrificial love for them, they begin to follow him obediently. They begin to align their lives to the gospel, to Jesus, instead of to any other ideologies. But the second gospel we'll settle with, we'll tend to settle with, we'll be tempted to settle with, would be the prosperity gospel. 
It's this view of if I just do these things for God, he is going to give me everything that I want. That's not how it works. And the third gospel that we'll be tempted to settle for is the progressive gospel. That's the gospel that says, look, some of the teachings of scripture don't align with the values of the culture and I'm going to choose to align with the culture and not with God. I'm going to choose, choose to trust the culture instead of trusting God. And the great temptation before all of us is to settle for the political gospel, to settle for the prosperity gospel, to settle for the progressive gospel. But just because following Jesus isn't easy doesn't mean it's complicated. Oh, friends, I have found so much comfort in these few short words of Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10, where he simply says, and find out what pleases the Lord. This is the gospel we are connected to. The gospel that says Jesus Christ died, rose from the dead, that he is how we are saved. And we live our lives according to what pleases God. That his, his perspectives, his views are the most important. And we live our lives to please him. And then lastly, church, did you know that the Holy Spirit prioritizes building God's kingdom with your life. Paul wraps up verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. That Paul lives with this singular focus. It's about people coming to faith. And every single one of us can embody that. That whether we're a plumber or a teacher, whether we're a first responder, whether, whether we're serving in some nonprofit, whether we're in the business marketplace, whether we're an actor, whether we're a, uh, a, a, you know, a, construction, a construction worker, wh- whatever your job is, whatever your role is, you can live with this singular focus. That it's about God using your life and my life to build his kingdom. See, one of the ways God does that is is when we serve. Serving builds God's kingdom. A, A few days ago, I was walking by Pastor Tamiko's office. And when I passed by her office, I saw all of these gifts in her office. And I stepped in and I said, you must be Purpose Church's favorite pastor. Did, did all the people at Purpose Church give you these gifts? And she said, she said, no, actually, our chosen ministry here at Purpose Church, which focuses on caring for, and it's a ministry, uh, our adoption and foster care ministry. She said, our, our, our chosen ministry decided to empower the people of Purpose Church and to invite the people of Purpose Church to provide gifts for kids in the foster care system. And, and so these gifts are, are going out to over 65 kids in the foster care system here in Pomona, just telling them, we love you, we see you, we care about you. You see, when these gifts are received, that's going to make an impact. Why, why would we at Purpose Church do that? Because we care, because Jesus cares. Because we want to advance his kingdom and we believe he does that through our serving. But the second way maybe, one one other way that God builds his kingdom 
is through forgiving. Through forgiving. Corey Ten Boom was a young Christian who was imprisoned with her family by the Nazis for giving aid to Jews early in World War II. Her elderly father and beloved sister Betsy died as a result of the brutal treatment they received in prison in this concentration camp. God sustained Corey through her time in the concentration camp. And after the war, she traveled throughout the world testifying to God's love. After enduring all the horrors and losing her dad and her sister in the concentration camp, she goes around the world testifying to God's love. And here's here's one moment that she wrote about in her book, The Hiding Place, about a remarkable encounter that she had in Germany. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him. The former SS man who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men. The heaps of clothing. Betsy's pain-blanched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, which means young woman. To think that as you say, he, talking about Jesus, has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people in Blumendahl in the Netherlands about the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. So I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on him. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us along with the command, the love itself. Church, did you know that this is possible in Christ by the Spirit this December for you? So I have two questions as we close, and they're these. Who is God wanting to help you serve this Christmas? Remember, it's not you going and serving on your own. This is the Holy Spirit helping you because church, you know the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Second question, who is God wanting to help you forgive this Christmas? Because church, did you know the Holy Spirit 
can do immeasurably more than we could do on our own because the Holy Spirit lives in us.